So if you would, turn with me to Mark 8, 34 through 9, 1. That is where we will behold and consider the wonders of God in his word this morning, Mark eight thirty four through 9, 1. You probably are familiar with the classic question, if you could have dinner with anybody from history, any famous person, who would it be and what would you ask them? Well, I have a little bit of a spin on it for you. If you could, if you could uh, have dinner and ask any one of these post, pro, post-crucifixion, post-resurrection, post-ascension apostles, one of the 11 here, we're, we'll exclude Judas, but if you could have, have dinner with any one of them and ask them any question, what would you ask them? What if you asked them this? What if you asked them to describe what it means to be a disciple. What if you ask them, what do you do as a disciple? What is it you do? And then what if you followed up that what question with a why question? Why do you do what you do? Why be a disciple? Essentially, you'd be asking Peter, John, or James, what is your mission statement and what is your vision statement as a disciple? We happen to be providentially by God's grace, in a season of, of, of discerning vision. And we'll look at that even tonight uh, at the members' meeting. And, and so this passage is very much, we're leaning into uh, what, what uh, this passage says, and, and by God's grace, it relates very much to where we feel God is leading us as a church. And so what if we ask these guys, what do you do and why do you do it? I think our passage, this text this morning, is, is going to reveal that to us because it's all about the what and the why of discipleship. Recall that, that Peter has just confessed who Christ is, and, and, and Jesus made clear, and we, we saw in that text, that, that Jesus' messianic mission as the Christ didn't quite fit Peter's categories, Right? But, but what Jesus is about to make clear is that when you confess me as the Christ, that means you confess something about yourself as, as a disciple of me, as a follower of me. Uh, one commentator puts it this way. He says, Mark eight twenty seven through 9, 1 is a continental divide between the first and the second halves of the gospel. It unites Christology, that is, who Jesus is as the Christ, and discipleship in a unique and symbiotic relationship. It teaches that a proper confession of Jesus involves a new understanding of discipleship. Whenever, a, a believer, whenever believers confess who Jesus is, they also inevitably confess who they must become. And so here in Mark 8.34 through 9.1, we will see Jesus teach what discipleship looks like. And we'll see that the the path of the Messiah, as Jesus has been revealing himself in power as the Son of God and the Messiah, is now revealing himself as the suffering Christ. And we will see that as a disciple, this way is very much our way too. So here, Jesus offers us the what and the why of discipleship. Look with me at Mark eight thirty four through 9, 1. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said this to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So we'll consider this passage in two parts. First, we'll look at verse 34 all by itself, the what of discipleships, what disciples do. Second, we'll look at verses 35 through 9-1, and we'll see the why of discipleship, the why of discipleship, why disciples do what they do. And the, the main idea here is that disciples pursue Christ in Christ's likeness because they treasure Christ and the promise of life in his kingdom above anything else. Disciples treasure Christ. So look with me at part one, verse 34. So immediately following uh, Peter's confession and Jesus's rebuke of him for misunderstanding the messianic mission... Jesus sees a moment, uh, we see Jesus take a moment to clarify what it means to actually follow him. So Jesus calls together the crowd, it says in verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So we see Jesus call together the crowd with his disciples, and Jesus is going to offer uh, the conditions of discipleship. He's going he's gonna to say the demand, what the demands of discipleship are. And, and notice this word would, if anyone would come. Another way we can translate that, another way we can understand it is if anyone wants to come. If anyone desires to come. If anyone wills to come after me. So we're talking about desire and will and wanting uh, and, and, and Jesus follows that up then with these three demands. What are those three demands? Let them deny themselves, let them take up their cross, and let them follow me. Now, these are non-negotiables. In fact, they're, they're imperatives. You could translate each in this way. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. He must follow. He must take up his cross. Let's look at each of these demands a little bit more closely. First, self-denial. Let him deny himself. What's Jesus getting at here? Well, what he is not getting at is mere asceticism and self-discipline. This is not just a do this and gain life. If you do these things, if you deny yourself these things, if you are self-disciplined enough, then you got it. If that was the case, then, then any Pharisee looks like a pretty good disciple, right? What Jesus is actually issuing here is a call that is much more extreme than self-discipline. It's a much bigger call than just asceticism. To, to, to draw this out, we're going to look at this word deny in a couple of places in Scripture. First, we'll look in Isaiah we read the passage this morning in our scripture reading. It's the only place in the Old Testament where we get the Greek word for deny. It's the only place it shows up. So we're going to go look there. And then we'll look back in Mark uh, for another example of this word deny. 
First, in Isaiah 31, as we heard read this morning, it's in the context of judgment, and God is calling through his prophet for the people to repent. Because his, because his, his king is coming to reign in righteousness. So this is the context. It's a call to repentance. And in that context, we read this in Isaiah 31, 6 through 7. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. Turn to God. For in that day, everyone shall cast away, that's deny, everyone shall deny his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which, key phrase, your hands have sinfully made for you. So, in the day of repentance, everyone will deny his idols, which your hands have sinfully made for you. Why do we turn to idols as humans. Because we believe that we have rightful claim over our own lives. We like to make the idol ourselves in the image we want rather than submit ourselves to someone above us. We can control an idol. We can make it how we want and put it where we want. We in our sin, in our sin nature are pre-programmed to believe that we should live for ourselves, and the world will reinforce this notion. Just look at social media. Self-fulfillment, self-expression will, will give you the greatest joy and happiness, right? Our idols, then, reflect what we value, what we love, what brings us self-fulfillment. And we are master craftsmen. We can make idols of anything. We can make idols of family. We can make idols of any relationship. We can make idols of, of material things, money, of jobs, status, reputation. We can make idols of anything that serves me, my, my desires, my purpose. But what Jesus has come to say, and the very thing he exemplifies by his life, is you don't actually have right over your life. This deny, then, is not, this deny yourself is not a call to self-discipline. This deny yourself is a call to die to yourself. You do not have the claim to your life. Reject your claim on your life that you're trying to maintain and submit to your creator. He has claim and right over your life. Follow me. So, Self-denial, then, is not just discipline. It is a call to die to oneself. Ultimately, we see Jesus exemplify this perfectly, and we'll talk more about that. But this leads us to the, the second demand, taking up one's cross. In the same way that, that self-denial could be misconstrued as, as self-discipline, taking up one's cross could be simply misconstrued as enduring hardship. But it's, it's actually more than that. Now, this is the first, this is the first uh, instance of the word cross in Mark, in the Gospel of Mark. The only other place it occurs is, I'm sure you could guess it, is at Jesus' crucifixion. Now, let's put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples in the crowd here who are hearing this call. They have no category for Jesus going to the cross and that being the way of salvation yet, Right? They have no category for cross jewelry. They have no category for crosses that you hang on your wall. They have no category for, for tattoo crosses. That doesn't exist for them. The only thing they think of when they hear cross 
is a Roman instrument of torture to execute criminals and rebels. That's what comes to mind. Essentially, then, Jesus is telling would-be followers that if you follow me, if you, re- re- you will renounce your claim on your life, and that might even look like dying. So, is this a literal physical death and suffering, or do we understand this simply as sinful, uh, death of sinful flesh? I think it's both, and, and let's, let's think about it for a moment. So, if Jesus is, is not talking about uh, simple, enduring hardship, but actual death, ten of these twelve apostles, history and tradition tells us, ended up dying for this faith. Some of them were even crucified. They literally fulfilled the call here in a very real sense. They died. And that's far more normative for Christians than we can than we can imagine. It's hard for me to wrap my head around this reality, but throughout history, especially in the early church, and especially, uh, uh, in, especially in the early church and the apostles, and, and for many Christians throughout history and many Christians today, the normative experience of, of the Christian faith is marginalization, not elevation. Christian values do not get you elevated in society. They get you marginalized. That's the more normative experience for early Christians and many Christians today in the world. We only need to uh, think of what happened a few weeks ago in, in the Punjab district of, of Pakistan. Hundreds of Christians fled and forced to flee from their homes because their homes were burned by a mob simply because of their faith. According to research for the year 2021, 360 million or one in seven Christians globally face significant persecution for their faith. Daily, an average of more than 16 believers were killed for following Jesus. It's a far more normative experience, and it's, it's hard for us to wrap our heads around. So what about us? How do we think about it? Well, we were talking in a small group the other day. Persecution and suffering for the faith comes in many different forms. And we may be tempted to think, well, like my, how real is my faith if I'm not experiencing it in that way? Well, we should, by God's grace, think that that thank him that we aren't presently experiencing those things. But we should also recognize that this is a gift. Scripture talks about it in this way in 1 Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's a gift. This is why the apostles in Acts 5, after they were beaten by the religious leaders of the day, went away rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. This is who you are if you confess Christ. You are a disciple. And by God's grace, if the time ever came, you too would be given the gift of faith to endure in this way. This is who you are. Even though this isn't our present experience, don't let this call slip away from you. This is who you are. This is who God has called you to be. So even if it's not a literal dying, though, it is certainly also a crucifying of sinful flesh. Luke picks up on this reality. 
in, in his parallel account because he adds in the word daily take up the cross. It's a, it's a daily taking up of the cross. And this certainly plays out in the crucifying of our sinful flesh. Romans 6.11 says this, So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Galatians 6.14 But far be it from me to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So disciples not only suffer in the faith, suffer for the faith, die in the faith, die for the faith physically, they also die to sinful flesh when they take up their crosses. So the demand of discipleship means both a willingness to follow Jesus, even unto suffering and death on account of the faith and crucifying your sinful flesh. Disciples take up the cross. And this is all taking up your cross and, and, and denying yourself. They're, they're intimately related, right? Because the self inside would say, I don't want to do this. That doesn't sound like the way to life. But here's a call again to die to yourself and reject that claim on your life. Newton, John Newton says this about self. He often talked about the self. He says, self is the worst enemy we have to deal with. Self-will, self-wisdom, self-righteousness, self-seeking, self-dependence, self-boasting. It is a large family. I cannot reckon upon all the branches, but they are all nearly related to Satan, and they are a sworn enemy to our peace. He goes on to say, the master self has many heads as hydra, as many lives as a cat. It is more than 25 years since I hoped it was fast nailed to the cross, but alas, it is still living Alive, mixing with and spoiling everything I do. This is a daily thing for the Christian. Denying self, taking up the cross. And this all fits in with the final call. Follow me. The final demand of of a disciple. The final demand of discipleship. It's an interesting one. Disciples of Jesus follow Jesus. In effect, Jesus says this. If anyone wants to follow me, then follow me. So why does Jesus include this? Well, discipleship is not theoretical. It's not an intellectual pursuit. It's it's an action. Disciples don't just say they do. Little children, let us not love in word or uh, or talk, but in deed and in truth. That's First John three, or James one's familiar. Doers of the word, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Disciples are people of action. They do. They follow Jesus, but. It also means that this self-denial and this taking up the cross is couched in following Jesus. It is done in pursuit of Jesus. As disciples follow who is discipling them, they become more and more like him, taking on characteristics, looking more like them as they follow. And Jesus did this self-denial and taking up the cross perfectly. And it was not only an example for us, but it was our very salvation. So in following Jesus in this way, in following Jesus through self-denial, and in following Jesus through taking up the cross, we're not doing that. We're not doing that to earn anything. We're doing that because he saved us by doing these things and calls us into it. Just think of how Jesus exemplified this in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. 
For even the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus did these very things to save us. And so, self-denial and taking up your cross then is Christ-like. Thus, when disciples follow Jesus in this way, disciples are pursuing Christ-likeness. That is what they do. Pursuing Christ-likeness in pursuit of Christ. This is what God is interested in. He is interested in making us and conforming us into the image of his son. Carson, perhaps, D.A. Carson, perhaps, Put, ties this up and puts a, a bow on it better than I could. So let me read him very quickly. We quickly learn that God is more interested in our holiness than in our comfort. He more greatly delights in the integrity and purity of his church than in the material well-being of its members. He shows himself more clearly to men and women who enjoy him and obey him than to men and women whose horizons revolve around good jobs, nice houses, and reasonable health. He is far more committed to building a corporate temple in which his temple in which his spirit dwells than he is in preserving our reputations. He is more vitally disposed to display his grace than to flatter our intelligence. He is more concerned for justice than our ease. He is more deeply committed to stretching our faith than our popularity. He prefers that his people live in disciplined gratitude and holy joy rather than in pushy self-reliance and glitzy happiness. He wants us to pursue daily death, not self-fulfillment, for the latter leads to death while the former leads to life. The latter leads to death while the former leads to life. So Jesus asks, if you would want, if you desire, if you will follow me, then do these things. Notice the prerequisite to this call. If you desire, do you desire? That's the prerequisite. Before anybody would even consider doing the other things, they'd have to want to follow Jesus. Why would anybody want to do that after a talk like this? It would sound insane to earthly ears. It's because of what Carson said right here, because the latter leads to death. To not do this leads to death, but to do this leads to life because you get Christ. And so we'll look at that now in verses 35 through 9-1, the why of discipleship. Why disciples would do this, which looks insane to the world. Look with me at verses, at verses 35, 9 through 1. Here Jesus is going to give two parallel reasons of why someone would desire to heed this call. And they're really one and the same, as we've kind of alluded to. First, Jesus is going to point out the promise of true life, the eternal life of your soul. This is a promise that, will, that, that uh, you will get this if you follow Second, the promise of himself, the son of man, Jesus in God's kingdom. So two promises that are very much the same. You will get life and you will get me in the kingdom forever. So first look at verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. So we need to consider what kind of life Jesus is talking about here. Now this 
This word for life here is the same word in the original language for the word soul in verses 36 and 37. So we have life here and we have soul here if you're reading in the ESV. And so it's, it's the same word. It can mean either one. It can mean either temporary physical life or it can mean the immortal life of the soul, the essence of life. The, li- the man became a living creature when God breathed into them. So here Jesus is talking about the temporary physical life now versus the true eternal life that awaits the immortal soul, the essence of man. Save life or lose life. So Jesus is saying, if you want to save your physical temporary life, if you live for that now, For yourself, you will lose it all. But the opposite is true. If you lose that temporary life, for my sake and the gospels, you will save it. Jesus goes on to make clear this is exactly what he means in verses 36 through 37. We read this, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can man give in return for his soul? So to save life, live for the temporary, you could gain the whole world doing that. You could own it all. You could be on top of the world. But if it came at the expense of your soul, it's not worth it. And that's what happens. And and so here we see that the the soul is of greater value than anything the world has to offer. In fact, we read this in Psalm 49, verses 7 through 9. It says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. There's nothing that man can give to buy back the soul. What gives the soul, this kind of value. It's not yourself. It's not ourselves. What gives the soul its value is the one who created it, the one who made you in his image. This is where the worth of the soul comes from. It comes from God himself. So what Jesus is is talking about here is the opposite of YOLO culture. The tongue twister, I can get YOLO culture. You know what YOLO means? You've heard it maybe. You only live once. So because you only live once, live for yourself. Do you. Do what satisfies you. That's the way you honor your life. But your life was not designed to be lived for just yourself. Your life was designed to live in relationship with your creator, with God. So to live for yourself is actually to devalue who you are. It is to look at your true worth and say, nope, I want to live my way. To live for yourself then is to reject God, and this, this, this causes you to lose the very life that makes your soul 
valuable. Try to save your life, you lose it. It's like a, you ever bought like a, a microwave, right? It has like a two-year warranty on it. But on that, that warranty, there's like a list of things. If you do this, you void the warranty. If you do this, you void the warranty. And many of us don't look at that until after the fact. And we're like, ah, I actually voided that warranty. I wasn't supposed to put metal in the microwave. It's a misuse of what it was for. If you misuse what your soul, what your very life was for, you forfeit that life. Because that life is found only in God. But if you lose your life, self-denial, taking up your cross, for the sake of who? For the sake of Christ for the gospel, then you get your life because you get God. Look at verses 38 through 9-1. So we've seen the promise that if you follow me, if you lose your life for my sake, you get it. So the promise of immortal life, your, your very soul, here we see it goes hand in hand with our relationship of, with God, getting God as we've touched on. 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So the second parallel reason, which goes hand in hand with the first reason of life, it picks up on the source of that true life, Jesus. Where do we see that? Well, if living for yourself here, then it is the equivalent of being ashamed of Jesus. I'm ashamed of Jesus. I live for myself. We often think of, of living for ourselves as, as a victimless kind of thing, right? Now, what, what, what Scripture is telling us here is if you live for yourself, you are actually ashamed of Christ. You're ashamed of God. And what that will result in is losing Christ and losing God when he comes in the glory of his father. We will be like those who come to the narrow door of the master's house, knocking and saying, let me in, let me in. And he says, I do not know you in Luke 13. And, and notice that, that living for yourself, uh, uh, being, being ashamed of, of Christ is done in the context of an adulterous and sinful generation. So it's this picture then of, of us living for ourselves, seeking out other lovers. Though our, our true husband, though our true source of life is God, we reject him, give him the stiff arm, and pursue other lovers, broken cisterns that give no life. It's like Gomer in Hosea. You remember this? God told Hosea to go and marry a, a prostitute. And he marries her. And, and, and it says in Hosea 7 and 8 that, that Hosea is giving her grain and wine and oil and taking care of her, giving her life, even while she is pursuing other lovers. And it says, she did not know that it was I who was giving her life. So even in the midst of our pursuits of this in this adulterous generation, the very life that's keeping us alive, the breath in your lungs... It's coming from God. It's a grace. What does this trade look like? Well, if, if, if being ashamed of, of Christ in this world 
leads to being, being ashamed by him, then, then the opposite is true. If you live for Christ, if you lose your life for Christ and the gospel's sake, then Jesus is not ashamed of you. You are not ashamed of him. You lose your life to save it. But we've made a trade. Humanity has made a trade. In fact, all this that, that Jesus is calling the disciples to, it looks even more uh, unattainable when, you, when we think of it in this way. Have you ever, have you ever um, heard of those stories where someone goes to a garage sale, right, and they're just kind of garage sale hunting, and they're like, oh, that's a nice picture. I think I'll buy that, $5. Come to find out it's a multi-million dollar Rembrandt or something. Have y'all heard of those stories where someone does that? I, I heard of one recently. Uh, a, a man went to a garage sale and bought some glass plate and photo negatives. He saw that they had, they had uh, pictures of landscapes on it, and he recognized Yosemite, and, and he, he used to work at Yosemite, naturally drawn to him, so he's like, ah, I'll take the, I'll fork over the $45. Well, it turns out that those photo negatives were taken by Ansel Adams. Daniel and I were talking about him the other day in the National Park documentary. So even if that name doesn't mean anything to you, uh, the, the worth of those photo negatives will. It is estimated that this man who spent $45 on these photo negatives over the next 25 years is going to make $200 million. Do you think the, garage, the person running that garage sale, if they would have known that value, would have said, eh, yeah, give me the $45 anyway. <laughs> they would have not done that. But this is what humanity has done. We looked at the eternal value of God, life with him, with the son. And we said, I don't want that. Give me the $45. I want to live for myself now. I want to spend it how I want now. What are we to do? How are we to even make that trade back? Because as Psalm 49 told us, there truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. But the psalmist goes on to say, Psalm 49, 15, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol for he will receive me. We come begging Take the $45 back. Give me back the eternal life that I just traded. And God looks down from on high and says, I'll make that trade. In fact, you don't even have to give me anything. I will give you my son. He will become rich or he will lose his wealth and become poor so that you can become rich. This is is what God has done for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is why disciples treasure Christ and the life they receive in him in God's kingdom forever above anything else. So we happily deny ourselves, happily take up our cross because we are gaining true life so much more. The dual promise of discipleship, life 
of your immortal soul with Jesus forever in the kingdom of God. And this is what uh, Mark goes on to, uh, uh, Jesus goes on to refer to in Luke nine uh, in Mark nine one. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So what this, this has kind of been a, a perplexing verse. We don't, what is Jesus talking about here? There's been thoughts. Is he talking about the kingdom of God coming with power and all that I've done, that all that Jesus is doing right now and casting out demons, these kind of things? Is that what he's talking about? Is he talking about uh, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, uh, the Holy Spirit coming with power? Or is he talking about the transfiguration that we're about to see in the very next scene? Well, in a way, it's, it's, it's a kind of a packaged deal here, right? He says, there are some standing here today who will not taste death. They will not die until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. We know that the disciples saw Jesus resurrected, spent 40 days with him, saw him ascend to heaven at the right hand of God the Father, send his Holy Spirit down to clothe them with power. The kingdom of God is here in power because the man, Jesus of Nazareth, is reigning on a throne in heaven right now. The kingdom of God has come with power, and these disciples saw it with their eyes. They're witnesses. And, and, and what we're also going to see, though, is that this very next scene... Next time, this transfiguration is, is really a foretaste of pointing to that day. It's very much connected to this. Peter, James, and John are going are gonna to see something that is giving them a foretaste of what is to come. And so we may ask, why would Jesus conclude this whole uh, discussion about discipleship with this? It's because he's holding out the promise. He said, you're going to see it. This is real. You will see the kingdom of God come in power because you will see me. When you get me, you get life. So disciples treasure Jesus. And because they treasure Jesus and treasure the promise of life in him, they gladly follow him. And so as we think of how to apply this, I think the first application, order of application, has to be this call to confess Christ, right? If you find yourself living for yourself now, that leads to death. But in Christ is life. Confess Christ and confess who you are in him, that is his disciple, who is his child. Salvation is in him alone and follow him. For those of us in Christ, we think of the what of discipleship. Disciples pursue Christ's likeness. We do that daily. And we must do that prayerfully. Because we know it doesn't come from our own life, our own power. It comes from Jesus who saved us. It comes from the Holy Spirit who empowers us. So we lean into that confession of our faith as we pursue Christ-likeness. 
Pursuing Christ-likeness also reveals just how unchristlike we are, doesn't it? Anybody who's followed Jesus for any amount of time can tell you that, uh, wow, this, uh, all this is, seems to be showing me is just how unchristlike I am. That's by design. Is it discouraging? <laughs> it can be discouraging, right? It can be really discouraging. But that is what it is meant for. It is meant to reveal to us, hey, you are not with me because you did anything to get here. You are with me because I called you and made you my own. I saved you. And I'm showing you and shaping you more into my image. So as we are walking and following and realize I don't look like Christ, We should cast ourselves back upon the confession of our faith, faith that is not separated from this call. We confess Christ and we confess who we are in him, saved by his worth, not our own. And God does not look on you in in shame. God sees his child. He sees your value. Not shame. He says, that's my child following me. So the why of discipleship, why do we do this? Because we treasure life. We treasure Christ more than life. So we want to continue to treasure him. We want to continue to see him. And he was our example in this, right? He was our perfect example. How did Jesus walk this path, endure the cross? Because he looked to the promises of God. Hebrews 12, 2, he did this for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the living proof that if you believe these promises, if you treasure God and his promises, Jesus is the living proof that you get life. He rose from the dead, reigning on the throne, resurrected forever. And so the author of Hebrews instructs us to do the same. We treasure Christ. We, we therefore, since are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, we lay aside every weight and sin, which clings so closely and run with endurance. The race set before us doing what? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We treasure Christ. We see him. This is how we have endurance for this race. So as Cody mentioned, we're singing the same song that we sung last week intentionally. It wasn't an oversight, though there were a couple of other things I missed in the bulletin. But, so I wouldn't blame you if you thought so. But here in this song, uh, the, the, the song, the words we're singing are telling us to look and see him. See Jesus, see what he has done, and see where he is now. As hard as this journey may be, as hard as following him may be, see what he has done and see what he has secured for us. Life. We read this, see him in Jerusalem walking where the crowds are. Once these streets had sung to him, now they cry for murder. Such a frail and lonely man holding up the heavy cross. See him walking in Jerusalem on the road to save us. Self-denial, 
taking up the cross. See him there upon the cross, now no longer breathing. Dust that formed the watching crowds takes the blood of Jesus. Dying for these promises. See the empty tomb today. Death could not contain him. Once the servant of the world, now in victory reigning. Life. Lift your voices to the one who is seated on the throne. See him in the new Jerusalem. Praise the one who saved us. Kingdom of God forever. Disciples, pursue Christ because they treasure Christ. Disciples, treasure and pursue Christ-likeness because we get Christ and he has given us life. Would you pray with me? Father, we read these astounding truths. And even as we read these and hear these, we can still wonder. Why is it that I do not deny self? Why is it that I do not take up the cross? Why do I not even feel I have the desire? But God, this is the promise you hold out to us promise that even in the midst of those kind of struggles endures. This is the promise. You confess Christ. You confess all of who he is and all he has called you to be. And if we get Christ, we get life. So let us cast ourselves upon the confession of our faith. And then God, would you empower us by your Holy Spirit to continue to deny the claim on our life crucify sinful flesh, and follow you to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.